Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Bridge in Chicago podcast. I'm Nathan here with Alita Miranda Wolf, who was here with us last week, and we are continuing her episode. And um, we hope that you did listen to part one. If you didn't get a chance to listen to part one, you can go back and do that now. And uh, we'll also be looking out for part three coming in next week. Uh, I want to give people a little more insight into who you are and understanding of certain parts about you so that, you know, we can understand a little more about what you're sharing or the heart of what you're sharing here. Um, I want to read something that is on the Ethos website um, that I found to be really interesting. Um, and it's some questions that you're answering here. And it's been, what has been your favorite aspect of working at Ethos? And it says, a few years ago, I was part of a branding exercise where people had to describe me in two words. My teammates at my previous firm used two phrases, big heart and problem solver. It turns out that what I love most about working at Ethos is having the space and permission to really care about people and to act on that care by digging into challenging situations and coming out on the other side with practical solutions. Now, the problem solving and the solutions part, people would be like, okay, those are resume words. Those are great. You know, we, we love those. Historically, the big heart piece is, is something, especially for women, that would have been like, you should not put that out there. You should not talk about emotions or talk about heart or talk about, you know, feelings because um, it's not good for anyone in business and it's especially not good for, for women. Um, so that historically has been a challenge that's been out there. And I think that um, obviously in what you do and who you are, we can already tell that it, it matters. And I think that sort of the reason that I want you to share about that with people is because having an understanding of, of who you are, um, of being a big hearted problem solving kind of person, I think gives some framework to how you do what you do and why you do what you do, because I think it's important for people to hear that. And so can you expand on that a little bit and, and share with us why those pieces are so important to you and and how they kind of show up in your work the first place that i want to start with it is just to say that this idea of emotion or care or compassion or empathy not having a place in business is just disingenuous because the way that people make decisions is emotional and if you mm -hmm. want to go to the logic-based problem-solving argument what you can do is say well let's look at the brain the decision-making center lives in the same place as emotions not in logic analysis or language when you trust your gut you are making an emotional decision and how did we decide that emotions were negative? They're just thoughts with a different character to them. So I, I always want to challenge that because I certainly heard it when I was coming up in my career. I had a mentor tell me that I need to learn to build a wall to protect myself, that I needed to be even tempered and measured. There was a period of time where I was coaching people on how not to cry at work because I was very good at not crying at work. And look, I don't think that this idea of bring your full self to work is fully genuine either, because one, I may not want to. The reality is that as people, we perform different versions of ourselves and we should have that choice. That's what I think authenticity is about, that we have a choice in how we present ourselves, not that we lay everything out on the table. But the idea that there's only one right way 
is just not supported by evidence or by experience or even by what makes people successful. Like I think about these sort of great men entrepreneurs and they always get shared as an example, you know, like Steve Jobs, who is one of the most emotional public figures that we ever saw before he passed away. So there is this sense of, I believe that this conversation around not showing care and compassion is one tied to the fact that those who identify as women or femme presenting are expected to leave, lead private rather than public lives. So you should have those feelings. You should have that big heart. It should be for your family and your community. Mm-hmm. And when you are coming into work, you have to take up less space and show up differently as a result so as not to kind of threaten whatever that ecosystem is. But I've worked with a lot of people and I don't think I've ever worked with someone who doesn't showcase emotion at work, but it is different to be emotional or show emotion and to have a big heart and care. And a few things that I would just say in response, one, any kind of advocacy, social impact, social justice work, if you don't care about the people or the cause or the mission, you will burn out because the cards are stacked against you. Everything I do is in service of people that I love and care for. And I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't that way. And I have worked with folks in organizations where I can say I do love them in a platonic way. Mm -hmm. And what I want for them, you know, I feel a heartfelt desire to help. And that's what motivates me. And that's what makes me able to listen and to support and to actually find a solution that makes sense. So I think it makes me a more effective problem solver. But then the other piece I go to, I put this in our employee handbook at Ethos because it's so important to me. I'm paraphrasing MLK and kind of the theologian Paul Tillich at the same time. But basically the idea is that there's this relationship between love and power. And power is the ability to self-actualize, to be who you want to be. And love is the desire of the individual to become part of the whole, to be connected. Power without love is abusive. Think about it. If I want to become what I want to become, and I don't care about the group, I don't care about others, I'll do whatever it takes. I will create whatever harm I need to create to achieve whatever vision of myself I want to achieve. But love without power is fundamentally anemic. It doesn't get much done because you can become lost in the group, lost in the whole, go along with whatever the whole does. So it's about balancing love and power, your own power and being able to work within it. And then this desire of a more communal form of love, of wanting better for the group, and wanting to do what is right and good for the group that I think allows for impact, that allows for real connection, that allows for purpose, that allows for authenticity and for commitment. 
And if we're talking about business, the conversation seems almost exclusively about power. And that in of itself is also disingenuous because it's not equally distributed. And often the only way that we can self-actualize is by being part of a whole of a group that does accept us and that allows us to form a coalition and push for change. So that's sort of my heady, lofty response. But I am the kind of person where if you're crying, I'll have tears in my eyes. I think about people I met three years ago. I left nonprofits for the first time in my career 10 years ago because there was a woman who was seeking citizenship status and our current laws did not allow for that. And so her kids were American citizens and she was not, and she was going to be deported and there was nothing that we could do for her. And I, I quit my job because yeah. I was so overwhelmed and so overcome with that emotion. And I had to learn over time how to channel that into not just the individual experience, but into a greater desire for more of a group than just the individual, because it's just disillusioning otherwise. And I don't know, why does anyone do anything hard? It's usually because of an emotional response. I often say this in sales, which is people do not buy the commodity. They buy the feeling it gives them. When you buy a software platform, like let's say it's a task management system, you pay for an upgrade on Calendly. You're not buying a calendar subscription. You're buying the feeling of relief that you don't have to be on an email chain for hours. Yeah. Right? That's that's a feeling that you're buying. Convenience, less stress. You might even be buying a greater sense of time. So being connected to and attuned to your own emotions means that you can be connected to desire and other people's as well, which allows for that to be fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that um, sort of looking through at other things through that same lens is really important too, because it gives you a new perspective on, I think for me, it makes a lot of things that happen around here make sense because it's like, oh, you think that people are making all these decisions outside of emotions, but when you remember that we're all people, we're all humans and we all have emotions. And for most people, it's impossible to completely take those out of even business decisions. You realize, I think for me, it gives me a place to give grace to people because now I see them as humans, as people who are doing their best with all this information that they have and with, you know, you, you trying to understand their emotions and make this decision, you know, with all this stuff and to say, okay, now I can see this and say, yes, it's a business decision, but it's a business decision made within the context of all of this, you know, that, it, that is about them. And I think for me, it just, it just makes me look and say, okay, I can give grace to a person who is doing that. It's hard when you're like, they're making decisions and it's just, pure business there's no motion it's just like fire people or you know move these people over there or do these different things and it's like you don't want to think of leaders as robots but sometimes it can seem that way but as you're sharing when you when you really remember that you know we are these whole human beings 
I think for me, it's easier to say, okay, um, even for people who have hurt me, I look at it and say, okay, you know, giving grace can be done to people who are, you know, able to give grace themselves. And I think to do that, you do have to have emotion and you do have to have um, empathy for people who don't have the same resources that you have. I also think that there, you know, a core of this that you're speaking to in ties to the individual self goes back to this idea of self-acceptance because I, I can tell you a story. So a few years ago, I got really into mindfulness and meditation. And originally I started the process because I wanted to self-optimize. I was trying to be smarter and work faster and be more productive And that didn't sustain me. So I didn't stick with the mindfulness. But I had sort of had a reputation for going to this meditation studio. And so somebody wanted to buy me a present. And they bought me this meditation book that the author was going to be doing a book signing for at the studio. So I went back after having really not done this for a long time. And she was reading passages from the book and leading us in a guided meditation. And she told a story which was about the Buddha and the story was all about pain versus suffering. So the idea is that, you know, you were sitting by a tree and an arrow strikes you. That is pain. And there's nothing you can do about that. Life is going to bring pain, but you then take out your own bow and arrow and you shoot yourself with a second arrow. And that second arrow is suffering. And that is in your control. You choose whether you shoot yourself with that arrow or not. That's ruminating, obsessing, bottling, Hmm. anything but confronting the truth of the situation and creating some space and peace and acceptance around it. I remember being in this space and raising my hand and saying, okay, that parable is great. And what if you already shot yourself with the second arrow? (laughs) What do you do then? Because that's where I'm at. (laughs) And Yael Shai, who is the meditation instructor and author of this book, What Now, told me that when that happens, I should put my hand on my face and just say, I'm so sorry. Hmm. And to just feel it and give myself the same kind of consolation and care and love that I would someone else. Yeah. And that would create so much healing. And I think where I'm going with this is I think a lot of big heartedness does come from the ability to show yourself care and love and real care, not self care in terms of an Instagram hashtag. I mean, the idea of listening within and responding in the most loving way possible, which is Taylor Elise Morrison's definition. And I think about some of what we've been talking about in this conversation, like comparative grief or oppression Olympics or power structures or telling people how they can be and how they cannot be. That feedback is often more about the giver than the receiver. And a lot could be changed if they took a moment and confronted their own fear and shame and hurt 
And that means that I believe that I have a responsibility to do that myself because the way that we learn is by seeing others do that. So, you know, this idea of giving grace, part of it is being able to give yourself enough grace that you can give others grace. Because if you're angry at yourself or frustrated with yourself, it's a whole lot harder to let things go with others. And I know that that sounds sort of like cliche and trite, but it doesn't when we start talking about really deep, dark social identity issues, like the ones that I deal with at work every day, where, you know, you are, you are confronting some really ugly systems and may not feel like being in a position to give that grace. And the place there that I go to is, you know, just like hurt people, hurt people, healed people can heal people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kind of um, along with that, can you, I was reading this um, article that you wrote on medium.com on your blog there. And uh, I found this to be really interesting because it's something that I've thought about before and kind of along the lines of what you were talking about, um, talking about fairness. And it says, the idea that something isn't fair plagues the discourse around social identity. More often than not, I see it coming between different non-dominant groups fighting for attention and resources. And um, I think along with what we've been talking about, talking about fairness is something that's important because as adults, we kind of come to understand that things aren't fair, right? Like as a kid, everything has to be fair. If you have a sibling and they get a new toy, you want a new toy. You know, I've even seen parents who if it's a kid's birthday they'll get the other kid a gift too it's kind of like okay now you know which i think is hilarious but um but but fairness is important when you're a child and then as you become an adult you begin to understand the world is not fair and that you just have to deal with that um so can you share with us about fairness and 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 its impact on um social identity, but also like amongst different groups? So I think the first question that when we are using a a term like that isn't fair, right, which can be a a child's response in a situation, but a sense of justice makes sense. And we all Mm -hmm. sort of have one. And really, when we're talking about fairness, we're talking about boundaries and who has violated which boundary. So I think then what has to happen is asking the right questions. Is your fair my fair? Because I actually think it's pretty subjective. So when I think about social identity groups and, you know, I I think about this sort of canonical example of the university only has so much money. And so either we're going to get a, Latin A Center or a Women's Center. You decide what's more important. And then those two groups might struggle with each other. And one will say, well, that's not fair. You have access to other funding. Or that's not fair. We have more people on campus who would benefit from this. Or more people in the community who would benefit from this. I think the question there is, okay, what is it? What does fair even mean? How do you define it? How do I define it? What boundary is being violated? And then is it really coming from us or is it coming from somewhere else? 
Because to an outsider, there's this question of, well, do you only have that much funding? Why don't you have more? And why would you as an institution compare two groups that are intersecting? You know, there yeah. could be Latin A women. Um, <laughs> what do you do in that situation? Do they have to choose between centers? What exists for them? Why aren't they being brought together? Why isn't the gap between them being bridged? Why are you creating this sense of competition? And this sense of unfairness between two groups that ultimately are actually subject to the injustice of the way that these resources are being doled out. So I think that there's this element of just being a little bit more critical of the system than of the groups themselves, but it's easier mm -hmm. to be critical of the groups because you can do something about it. We were having this conversation um, in a white supremacy culture talk that we were leading on our team. One of the studies that we were looking at was that the most hated group in the U.S. today is white women. And when we were discussing it, one of the things that came up is, well, it's easier to hate a white woman than a white man because she has power, but not enough. Like you could still win that fight. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that's right or wrong or that's my p position, but the fact that it came up in the conversation was really interesting to me because it sort of illustrates this idea of it's easier to quote unquote, pick on someone your own size. And that's what can sometimes lead to this infighting. But the question could be, what if we came together and identified the real source of this yeah. problem? Who's creating yeah. the boundary violation? Because I want a center and you want a center and neither of us has to be in a situation to hurt the other to make it happen somebody else is putting that obstacle in our path yeah and, and i think they're counting on the fact that we'll be so distracted by each other kind of fighting that out that either we'll tire ourselves out or we'll just kind of give up saying well we're never going to solve this anyway. So who cares? Just give the center and let's be done with it. Because I feel like that's where I hear a lot of people who do work in, um, in the social services kind of end up is like, well, I'm doing the best I can, but eventually I'm going to get really tired because I'm constantly fighting uphill, no matter what area I work in, I'm constantly fighting uphill. And, you know, we have, the change in presidency and so you know a lot of things change and funding changes and or universities say well that's not important to us anymore now we're worried about cicadas or whatever you know things are things that are out of our control are constantly changing and i think that can um you know whether it seems fair or unfair or whether it's just a fact of life it can be something that that keeps people from having the energy to keep trying even. And I think as um, non-white, you know, as, as, as any minority group in any place, let's say, would probably feel at some point, um, that, I, I mean, I think that really can keep people from flourishing in not just who they are, but I mean, realistically, we're talking about flourishing in who they want to be and who they want their children to be because, you know, building generational wealth is really important, but it can only be done 
over a period of time. And it, and it's often done by, uh, you know, matriarchs who are keeping these families together. And yet, um, I think we're kind of counting on the fact that they'll just fight it out and tire themselves out. And all of a sudden people don't want to do the work anymore. And the, the reason I say that is because when I was initially looking at what you do, I thought it was really interesting um, that um, your work is in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And belonging is something that even I hadn't put with those other three yet. And I think that after hearing what you've been saying and after looking at the work that you do, it is really important. And it does belong there because I think it gives people this sense that um, there's purpose behind this. And, and that the goal isn't just like, okay, let's make things fair, but belonging it, to me, it just gives it such a more whole sort of, I'm trying to find the right word for it. It, it just gives it so much more of a, there's so much more reason to, to do the work and to be as vulnerable as you're being here with us and sharing this information because this in and of itself is really difficult work. With belonging this research in particular, one of the things that caught me early on was a really simple statement at the top of a Roy Baumeister paper, which was to belong is to matter. Now, what could be a more fundamental human need? To feel like there's a point to you, to feel like you matter, that you have value, that you are on this earth for a reason. And the way that I've thought about belonging, though, is kind of thinking about that combination of power and love and why I think it belongs in DEIB is the way that I've come to understand belonging is it's about being part of something greater than yourself that you value and respect and values and respects you back. And there's something that for me, without the B, the DEI don't, doesn't feel like enough. Mm -hmm. And and also with the belonging, if you just have it on its own, you'll end up with a bunch of sameness, right? Because it's easy to feel like you belong in a group full of people just like you. So in order to expand the size of your community and create more opportunity, there does need to be diversity. There does need to be a correction for imbalances and disadvantages. And there does need to be that invitation in which is how I see inclusion, but being included isn't enough. You know, having an invite to that house party and being asked to dance, as you know, Renee Meyer says, is nice, but it's not sustainable. It's not a long-term solution. Yeah. And I think about the importance of belonging at work because we spend so much time there. We develop so many relationships there to spend your life in a place where you feel that you're not respected, you're not valued, you don't believe in what the organization does, and you're on your own, you're not part of something greater. That's destabilizing, isolating, and it's not socially healthy. I mean, I just think about the new social wellness statistics that came out this year, that 51% of young people ages 18 to 25 experience severe loneliness 
that 61% of young mothers experience severe loneliness, that this sense of loneliness has increased significantly since COVID started. And I say to myself, well, everybody's working more. We know that from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that the average work week has expanded by five hours per week. So we're working more. We feel lonelier. We don't feel connected to the people we work with and work is what we do with our whole lives. And I definitely think we need to reform work uh, so that there's less of it. I also would say that every time I ask people what their community is, and I do a lot because I, I run a lot of leadership development programs for people from underrepresented groups and underserved groups. And the first example they give me is always their workplace which is interesting because it's not how we used to define community. Community used yeah. to be your neighborhood or your church or religious institution. If you were a person of faith, it was um, your community center, your bowling league, your PTA maybe. But I mean, I've asked this question to about a hundred different women of color over the last two years, and almost every single one has defined their community as either their immediate workplace or their immediate family. And I wonder how many of us would be able to recognize that in ourselves. Like, is that something that you would be able to look at yourself and be like, oh, wow, I I am doing that? Because it, it can, I, I mean, it's one of those things, like, it seems like it can just sneak up on you and be like, you don't even realize. Because maybe it's just 30 extra minutes a day that you're working. And so you're saying, ah, you know, I'll work a half an hour more, whatever. I'm working through lunch. I'm, I'm, you know, taking on a project that, isn't in my, you know, sort of department or whatever, because I, I want to feel like a team player at the office. I want, I want to be a team player at the office and I want them to know like that, that I'm in this with them. And meanwhile, you know, at home or in your family, you're, they're struggling to to keep you there, to get that attention, to get that love that, that, uh, that they need. But, but I don't, I don't know that it's, I guess I'm wondering, like, does that just sneak up on people? Do you think that people would even be able to recognize that in themselves? I mean, I think that they are recognizing it because it's driving the great resignation mm. in part that being alone with themselves and being more isolated has made them see the ways in which they are working too much or burning themselves out. So I, I do think that it is happening. I think that a few other elements can make the realization come sooner. So Project Include put together a report on workers during COVID. And one of the things that they saw was an increase in race-based hostility at work and an increase in gender-based discrimination, especially against trans and non-binary workers. So if you're coming into work, your so-called community with difference, you're more likely in a remote setting mediated by technology to experience this kind of rejection and exclusion and to not fear, feel that it's part of a community. Yeah. I also think that one of the 
conversations that I have with a lot of the folks that I coach and that I have experienced myself is that when you come from an underrepresented and underserved group, you feel so much more pressure to put in the extra hours and you're doing the work of your job description and dispelling any stereotype, myth, or preconception Mm -hmm. about your group of people. And that might be conscious or unconscious for you, but it certainly is going to lead to overwork. And it's an actual pretty evil (laughs) recruiting strategy. So there's um, a great Harvard Business Review study on this, but basically big four um, consulting firms have a profile, insecure overachievers. That's who they want to hire. So they're people who are really exceptionally skilled and work really hard and always feel bad about themselves. And those are the people who will work the longest hours, 80, 90 hour weeks. And there are ways to screen for that kind of person and that kind of profile, including how much adversity they've faced and how many challenges they have experienced in their early lives. So there is both an element of do we see it in ourselves, but also when we see our companies exploiting these characteristics or qualities, how do we hold them accountable? You know, I think that's what a lot of this workplace conversation today is about. How do we create more flexible hours? American workers are the most productive they've been in the history of the American workforce. So why are we asking for more productivity? What does that do at this time? I think Americans are 40% more productive than in the 1970s. And they're working more hours. So who, who is that on? You know, this is, this is where I kind of go back to, I'm a millennial and I get a lot of flack for being a millennial all the time. You know, uh, millennials are always on their phones. Well, here's what I can tell you. I worked six jobs in college and what's on my phone, my work email. Of course, I'm always on my phone. What if someone's asking me to do a thing? What if it's my relationship to money, which is not something that I have as an unlimited resource. And it gets confusing because people will say, well, you're always on social media or something like that. I actually am not always on social media, but let's say (laughs) we're using that as an example. Yeah. I mean, that's how so many people are making their livelihood now, either directly or indirectly. How do you find a new job if you're not on LinkedIn? When you talk to a career coach or you talk to a recruiter and you ask, well, how do I get a new job? One of the first things they say is you need to be posting on LinkedIn every day. So is it that you have a problem? Is it that our system needs to be changed? And the reason I say that is not to diminish this idea of personal responsibility or taking command, um, but as a reminder that it's not like universally all of these people are purposely making bad decisions they're being pushed into this process and in many situations aren't making the decision at all so i i want to be cognizant of that and conscientious of that because when we talk about things like microaggressions and i go into a company system the most common microaggressions are around people needing to work harder 
or change some element of their personality or suck it up or not make everything about race all the time. And all of those communicate the same message, which is there is no external problem. The problem is you. You need to fix yourself because the only reason that you could ever struggle is because of you. And that's simply not true. It, it, the evidence doesn't support it. You know, if you are three times more likely to die of COVID if you're Black. And our language has a lot to do with that. I just have one thing that I want to share because I feel like it's helped illustrate that the way that we talk about things puts the onus on individuals as opposed to the systems that need to change. This was uh, an example, it's not exactly the same, but I've sort of adapted it from a New York Times article that recently came out on our changing language around social identity. So if we say something like, black people are three times more likely to be incarcerated than white people, the question that might follow is, what's up with black people? Hmm. But if we say prisons are three times more likely to incarcerate black people than white people, what's the question going to be? What's up with what's prisons? Up with prisons? Yeah. yeah. So that's part of why I'm constantly kind of pushing on this to say, well, is it an individual thing? Or yeah. is it a systemic or structural thing? Is it that you're working too much? Or is that companies expect you to work this much? Or they will find someone to replace you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago, as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solutions Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including, but not limited to, or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceedings.